Please open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22. If you are using a pew Bible today, that is a, there are Bibles in the pews along the center and along each end of the aisle. There are a couple of Bibles stacked or should be stacked there. And I'd invite you, if you do not have one, to use one of those. If you're using one of those today, it is page 17, Genesis being the very first book of the Bible, and we are looking at chapter 22, and you'll notice that the, there are large numbers and small numbers. Large numbers are the chapter divisions. The small numbers are the verse divisions. And we are going to be looking at chapter 22, verses 1 to 19 this morning, but before we do so, Would you join me in prayer as we begin studying together God's word? Father in heaven, you have created men's mouths. And you have made my mouth. Father, I ask that you would allow me this morning to properly communicate the truths that we find here. And that you would allow all of our hearts to receive the food of your good word. Knowing that this word, what your your son, our Savior, tells us, that this word cannot be broken. Not one word of it, not one jot, not one tittle, not the smallest marks of any word will fall away. That they are eternal. Father, let it be to us bread, spiritual bread, to satisfy our hungry souls. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. In the early 1300s, a man by the name of Arnold de Villanova is a scientist and discovered that there was a substance that by a substance that could tell whether uh, something else was acidic or non-acidic. He began to use it for that purpose, but it wasn't really to the 1600s that that test, so to speak, began to grow in popularity. It began to use a substance, a lichen, that uh, would change color when it came into contact with something that was of acidic character. So ground that was acidic or some other kind of chemical, if it was acidic chemical, they could put it in and it would change color, and they named it the litmus test, a phrase that you and I use for all sorts of things these days. But we generally don't use it in that, uh, in that context. Most of us aren't using it in a lab. We use it for other things in life. You can have a litmus test for politicians. That is, a politician could or someone could hold to 90% of the platform of one party or another. But if they don't hold to one or two issues... They are ejected, they are rejected, they are considered, if you're a Republican, a rhino, a rhino, a Republican in name only. I don't know if they have such a, maybe it's a dino if you're a Democrat, I don't know how that works, but uh, you are, you're not genuine, you're not authentic. We use this in sports, when teams have a similar record, but one team hasn't really been playing any good teams. And they come and now they go head to head. Sometimes you'll hear the broadcasters announce this is going to be a litmus test for both teams. Which one is the contender? Which one is the pretender? Which one's real? Which one's just been 
feeding off the lowest of the teams. Who's had it easy so far? We use it in all sorts of life. We use it for ourselves. Sometimes before making a big commitment to something, we might try making a small commitment in that direction. And if we can't meet that small thing, then then we won't try the big thing at all. We use this idea of a litmus test or even that phrase litmus test in, in all sorts of ways. And what we find in Genesis chapter 22 is that God is applying a, a sort of litmus test for Abraham. And what he is trying to test is whether Abraham's faith is genuine, authentic, or whether it is fake. And that is exactly what we find happening here. So what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to read all, well, the first 19 verses. We'll look at the the last handful of verses next week when we come back to Genesis. We're going to read through the first 19 verses together. And I realize that for many of us, if you have grown up in church or been in church a long time or been reading your Bible for a long time, this passage is going to be very familiar to you. It is one that when... uh, children are taught in Sunday school. This is a passage that never gets missed. We might miss some passages, but this isn't one of them. The story is just vivid. It's intense. But many of you, some of you, may never have heard this passage before. And so we want to walk through it together and pray and ask the Lord that it would be with fresh eyes that he would give us so that as we come to this text our hearts would be renewed to receive it. Genesis chapter 22, verse 1. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he, the Lord said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The lad and I, the boy and I will go yonder and worship and we will come back to you. So Abraham took the word, wood and the burnt offering and he laid it on Isaac, his son, and took the fire in his hand. It is a fire stone of some sight. He's he's not literally holding fire here. It's a, a stone that will help him produce that. Took fire in his hand and a knife and the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. Then he said, This is Isaac. Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. And they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. And he bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand 
and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And so he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the, on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram, caught in a thicket by its thorns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day. In the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessing I will bless you. And multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they rose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. There is much in this passage that is worthy of our meditation. This week I looked at how some other pastors had handled this in the past. And I saw some of them preaching four and five sermons on this text. And I thought, yes, if I was really wanting to exposit everything here, it would need about that many But then I began to think if I started doing that in each chapter of Genesis, we would never end our study of this book. We're going to try to work our way through this passage in once. And so I'd encourage you this week to spend some time on your own meditating on on these verses. They are rich. There are riches here that we will not be able to touch on. Well, the first thing I want us to see is that there is both faith expressed by both Abraham and Isaac. We are going to look in just a moment on Abraham's faith. And it's clear as we read through that passage, Abraham has and is showcasing faith in God. But one of the things that is easy to do is to begin to assume that Isaac is here uh, just as a passive observer. We can ignore him, forget him. But what we see in the passage is that he himself is displaying an act of faith himself. We see this in a couple of ways. In each section, and there are are three sections here. And each of them are tied together by two phrases. In verse 1, we have God calling to Abraham. And Abraham's response is, here am I. And in verse 6, we are told that both He and his son Isaac, they went, and the two of them went together. And this is up to the hill. They they, they go together. And then in verse 7, Abraham is again, he is asked by his son, Dad, Dad. And he responds, here am I, Isaac, my son. And in verse 8, we are told, so the two of them went together. And then in, in verse 11, Abraham is again asked, he's called on by the angel, Abraham. And he responds with, here I am, the third time. 
And in verse 19, we are told that they both rose and went together. Three times each of these phrases are used and it indicates this breaking of the passage, but it does more than that. It shows us that both Abraham and Isaac are in lockstep each and every step of the way. More than this, Isaac's age leads us to see that he, he is not mere doing whatever his dad here told him as, as, as a four or five or six-year-old child might do, where we could forcibly, Abraham is able to forcibly make his son do something. By this age, Isaac is at least a, a teenager. We see this back in chapter 21, where he is merely a toddler, He is merely being weaned. We saw in the very first few verses, he is weaned and he is a toddler in that that chapter. But by now, he is old enough to be the one where Abraham, when he takes the wood that he has split, he puts it on Isaac. And Isaac is old enough to carry that wood up a hill. I have four sons and I can tell you that I am not expecting my youngest to be able to do that. My oldest are not volunteering to do that either. Although winter is coming and wood is there to be split and they know that's what they're going to have to do. But here this person, Isaac, he is old enough now to carry a large amount of wood that has been split. He is old enough to carry it up a hill. So we're not given an exact time frame of how much time has passed or how old Abraham is or how old Isaac is, but clearly he is old enough to accomplish these tasks and yet still young enough to be called by his dad a a boy. Now, I say that and I'm not sure if it's merely an affectionate boy come along or if it is the the words of someone in, in Abraham by this age is well advanced in years. He is more than 110. So when you're 110, I'm guessing even if he is, you know, late teens, he's probably still calling him boy. When I first came here as pastor, I was 28 years old and Ida May, uh, she would call me affectionately her boy pastor. And I accepted it as a term of affection. Because when you are as mature in years as she is. I'm 50 years her junior. I'm her boy pastor. So whether it's, it's something along those lines, we, we, we don't know. I, I imagine he is 15, 16, 17. He could be older. But that, that's important for us. Because what we see is that he is at every moment cooperating with his dad, trusting his dad. When his dad tells him, we're going to go and we're going to make a sacrifice, he goes along with him. When he asks, hey, where's the sacrifice, dad? And his dad said, the Lord will provide. He goes along with him. When his dad says, son, I I need you to do something odd for me. I need you to stand here, put your arms behind your back or somewhere. I'm going to bind you up. And now I want you to help. He's 110 years old. Abraham is going to need some help to get Isaac up on top of the altar. Isaac's going to have to cooperate every step of the way. Isaac is trusting Abraham. And Isaac is trusting God with all of this. Even as we are going to see Abraham trusting the Lord. Every step of the way. 
But this raises a question. In fact, we've kind of glossed over that very first question. Why would God command this? Why would a holy God command his servant to kill his son? Elsewhere in Scripture, numerous places in Scripture, God condemns this very practice. Why would God in this instance then command Abraham to kill his son Isaac? Why does God command Abraham to do what what he, the Lord, hates? And we see the answer to this in verse 1. And while the command is genuine, it is not intended by any means to be carried out. In fact, we can be sure of this, that the Lord who made the heavens and the earth and providentially rules over everything is not going to allow Abraham's hand to slip. But the answer here in verse 1 is, Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham. He is intending to prove him, like metal through fire, to purify God's intention is to perform this litmus test on Abraham's faith as to see whether it is genuine or whether it is counterfeit. And this test is unimaginable. It is unimaginable. And it begs the question, of all the tests that God could have devised, why this test? Why does he require Abraham to do this? Now you and I, we have read through the passage and we know how it ends. Abraham doesn't have that luxury. Abraham at this point is walking by faith and not by sight. So why would God command him to take your son your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go and sacrifice him. Why would God do that? There are several things that we can see here. And the first is that it tests the depth of Abraham's loyalty. It tests the depths of Abraham's loyalty to God. Back in Genesis 14, 18 to 22, Abraham sees and he publicly confesses that God is the most high God, that he is supreme. In fact, when he is asked to give up, he, he, he tells the king of Sodom that he has already given up his hand to the Lord. He will take nothing for himself because God alone is Lord. He will not in any way... Uh, undermine the lordship of of God in his life. But the question is, is Abraham completely committed to God? If God is most high, is Abraham completely committed to him? And that is the nature of this test. You know, many sacrifices could be made that where the the one who was making the sacrifice would offer up a sacrifice, but he would keep part of it back from himself. But this is a burnt sacrifice, something that was meant to be totally given to God. It it pictures ultimate loyalty, ultimate devotion, ultimate commitment to God to offer up a burnt sacrifice. That is, you, you give it up and you receive nothing back. 
More than this, the Canaanite religions around Abraham, many of them, they would have themselves demanded and taught that those who worshipped their Canaanite gods, those false gods, they would have been required at times, especially if they needed their God's attention to express their loyalty, their commitment to their God, they needed to offer up an extravagant sacrifice. And so one of the things that we see is that those Canaanite religions, in those Canaanite religions, is that people would offer up their children as sacrifices to their gods. And the question seems to be this for Abraham. If the people around you are willing to make such extraordinary and amazing sacrifices and to give up all things and to commit all things to their gods, which are no gods, are you willing to make such a sacrifice for me? It tests the depths of Abraham's loyalty. More than that, it it tests the one Abraham is really trusting in. This is the litmus test on whether Abraham has learned to trust in God. Back in Genesis chapter 17, 1, Abraham refers to the Lord as God Almighty. At the end of the chapter that we saw last week in chapter 21, Abraham confesses that God is the everlasting God. That is, he's the eternal God. That is, he has life in himself. And if he has life in himself and nothing else does, then he is the one that gives life to all other creatures. So is the God who is in control and is the God who is all-powerful and the God who has the ability to give life, is he able to be trusted to raise his son from the dead, which is what the author of Hebrews tells us that Abraham was ultimately believing that God would do. But throughout Abraham's life, we see numerous times where he fails. He failed to believe that God would give him a son through Sarah. And so he and Sarah try to help God out. And through Hagar, he has another son, And then twice we are told Abraham not trusting the Lord to protect him. He asks his wife to lie to say that she is only his sister so he can protect his own skin. Is Abraham really trusting in God or is he trusting in himself to manipulate the situation? Here, there is no out. You will either trust the Lord or you won't. There is no way to fake God out as if God will not know whether you have sacrificed your son or not. Like all of us, Abraham's life is filled with highs and lows, with acts of faith and acts of faithlessness. And the question is, does Abraham really trust God? Is he really willing to trust God with the life of his own son? And the third, it leads up to this. It tests whether and what Abraham really loves. It tests what he really loves. Over and over again, we are told that Isaac isn't just named, he is referred to as 
Abraham's son. In fact, 13 times in this passage, Abraham is called, uh, Isaac is called Abraham's son. 13 times. And in fact, you can see there in the opening words in, in verse Two, then he said, take now your son. He doesn't just say, take Isaac and I want you to go to Moriah. No, he says, take now your son. And let me raise the stakes a little bit. Your only son. Now I'm going to name him Isaac. Now let's raise it up again. The one whom you love. God is taking his finger and he is pressing it down in the wound. It's, It's as if he is turning the oven on and turning it all the way up. It's as if the car is driving and you are watching the gauge of the temperature of your engine go from blue into the neutral and now you're, you're on the red line. God has carefully calibrated each of these phrases to ratchet the intensity of the test All the way up. And the question is this. Does Abraham love the giver? Does he love the Lord? Or does he love the gift? Does he love God? Or does he love the gifts that God gives? This test given to Abraham ought to cause each of us to examine ourselves. Are we completely committed and devoted to God? We can look around the world and we can see vivid illustrations in the news of men and women who are willing to sacrifice their kids to strap them with explosive material and send them off to give their lives in the name of a God who is not a God. Parents, are we willing to make such a sacrifice? Our God will never command us or call us to make such a sacrifice. But are we willing to give our, ki- our, our children over to the Lord to use as he desires? Kids, young people, men, young men and women. Kids give themselves, they give their lives to all sorts of things. To sports, to entertainment. Does God have your devotion You know, here in the West, we parents still sacrifice their children, but we sacrifice them to our jobs. We sacrifice them to our hobbies. We're all going to make sacrifices. We can't help except make sacrifices. You can't be more committed to something without sacrificing something else. And the call that each of us have from the Lord is to be totally committed to God. To be totally devoted to him. And so we can examine our our recent purchases, our recent decisions, our recent sacrifices. And we can ask, did, did our commitment to God play any part in them? Was it our first priority at all? Not only are we committed or devoted to God, but are we really trusting in God? Or are we trusting in someone or something else or even in our own selves? Are we hoping that we can through some means deal with our past, cope with our present, prepare for our future through wisdom, 
Perhaps in our case or in your case, trusting the Lord will mean handing off some decisions to someone else. To your children or to your parents. To a coworker, receiving counsel from a coworker or a friend. Are we really trusting the Lord or are we trusting ourselves to figure out our problems and deal with it? And do we really love the gifts or do we love the giver? Do we want God for God or do you want God for what he can give you? If Abraham loved the gift more than the giver, he would never have taken one footstep toward Mount Moriah. What would we do in facing this choice? We can figure out what we really love with just a few questions. What do you daydream about? You know, before you drift off to sleep at night, what's going through your mind? When nothing else is happening and you get a few moments, what are you thinking about? Where do you go mentally? When do your emotions get the better of you? What gets you angry? What gives you joy? What brings you those highs? What brings you those lows? And what is that thing that you can make any excuse to buy? That if, that, if, that if it comes up and it doesn't even need to be on sale, you don't need to justify it to yourself at all. You love it so much, you're willing to, to sacrifice for it. And we're entering, entering into hunting season. Is it a, is it a, a gun or a bow? Is it a new piece of clothing? Is it, is it entertainment of some sort? Is it a book? Are we really devoted to God? Are we really trusting him? Are we really loving him? And the last thought that related to this testing is, who is this test for? Of course, we read in this passage that God will respond to Abraham's almost sacrifice as, now I know that you fear me. But ultimately, this test cannot be for God's benefit. God knows us, does he not? He knew exactly what Abraham would do, not just before he commanded him to do it, but before he created all things. He who is outside of time and sees all things all at once, knew what would happen. No, God is not running this test because he needed to to figure something out. Rather, he is running this test for Abraham's benefit in two ways. First, it it tests and it strengthens Abraham's faith. We see this in James 1, 2 to 4. And in fact, this this idea is repeated numerous times through the New Testament. Where James here writes, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God God sends us tests and he sends us trials to strengthen us. But more than this, God runs this test, this litmus test on Abraham 
so that Abraham himself will know that his faith is genuine. This is what Peter is referring to in 1 Peter 1.7 when he talks about the tested genuineness of our faith. Faith gets proved through trial. In fact, trials are one of the ways that we will know as we endure them and cling to the Lord through them, that is often when we discover whether our faith in the Lord is genuine or counterfeit. God runs this test for Abraham's benefit. And we see Abraham's response to this test throughout. He is, he is submissive. In fact, each time the Lord calls him, he responds, here I am. Here I am. He is, there is a submissive heart to the Lord. More than that, his, his response is immediate. It is an immediate obedience. Not just a submissive obedience, but immediate obedience. We see this in verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey. I am certain that after he received the vision from the Lord and after he heard the Lord talking to him, this was no, all right, well, I'm going to woke up and now I'm going to get back to sleep. I don't think he was sleeping after this. And his response isn't to just lay there and, and wait in anxiety. He begins to make preparations. He gets up and he begins the process of getting ready to go. There is no delay. There is no feet dragging. There is no time spent, well, maybe tomorrow or the next day. And you can imagine, when, when you know your own hearts. When there is something you don't want to do, any excuse is a good enough excuse. His response, his obedience is immediate. More than that, it is prudent. It is thoughtful. It is careful. It is prudent. Notice what he does immediately after he wakes up. So Abraham rose in the early morning. He saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son. And he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. That is not a small process. He does not have a a hydraulic wood splitter to help him with this process. He is doing it all by hand. We, my family, we enjoy every now and then splitting wood by hand. My father-in-law has a hydraulic wood splitter. And we will use that sometimes. But sometimes you just need to do it yourself. Sometimes you you just need to handle it yourself, handle the axe, the sledgehammer, use the wedge, and that takes time. Here he is. He doesn't just run run off early. The expression of genuine faith isn't, oh, God told me, and, and, and just run off. Here he is counting the cost. He is making preparations. He is packing some bags so that they have food. He is bringing the wood with him because he doesn't know if there will be wood at the place where he's got to go. He is thinking. He is careful. He is prudent. Genuine faith isn't, isn't thoughtless. It's not careless. Genuine faith is prudent. It counts the cost, Christ says. More than this, it is enduring obedience. Here we see enduring obedience. 
for the entire trip, for, for as soon as he gets out the door and starts on this journey, he has plenty of time to think about what he is going to do while he's on the way. That initial rush of action, getting the servants up, packing whatever food you're going to take, whatever clothes you might want to change into, packing, uh, getting the, the, the wood ready, splitting it and packing it up and, and loading it on. All of that must have taken hours. But now you're on the journey and you're walking. Now all that busy work is over. And your mind is free to think... And he carries the knife with him that he is planning to use on his son. And the text tells us that it was on the third day that he reaches the place. It is an enduring obedience. All that time he he intends to obey. Which is not to say we are not given a window here into his emotions. We're not told that every step of the way Abraham was firm in faith and rejoicing in singing hymns. That there was no doubt or wavering at all. We're We're not told any of that. What we are told is how he obeyed. He obeyed well. And we do see that there are glimpses of confidence in his obedience. In verse 5, when they reach Mount Moriah, he tells his servants that he and his son are going to go alone up the mountain to worship the Lord. And he says, we will return. And then again in verse 8, as he and his son Isaac ascend the mountain, There seems some assurance on his part. The Lord will provide. Despite how difficult this trip must have been, glimpses of Abraham's confidence still peek through. What we see is that his obedience serves to show that his faith is genuine. And that's what obedience does. Obedience doesn't save him. Rather, obedience becomes the evidence by which he knows his faith is a genuine saving faith. Verse 12, we read, and he said, this is the Lord. Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. This is what has given evidence to the genuineness of Abraham's faith, his obedience. And this is what James is referring to in James chapter 2. All throughout Paul's writings, Paul makes it clear that we are justified, that is declared righteous by God on the grounds of faith alone in Christ alone. But then in James 2, we read these words. Follow along, listen along as I read James 2, verse 18 to 24. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. 
Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scriptures was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith. Well, which is true? Are Paul and James disagreeing with one another? Paul, who is adamant, we are justified by faith and not by works. And James, who says we are justified by works and not by faith alone. Which is it? What is happening here? Do the scriptures disagree with one another? No. Not at all. What Paul is arguing is that faith uh, works play no part in the grounds of our salvation. Rather, we are justified, declare righteous in the sight of God by faith alone in Christ alone. What James is emphasizing is this aspect. That the faith by which we are justified by God in Christ alone is never alone. The faith that justifies is never alone. That his faith is given evidence that it is genuine by our obedience. By our works. Which is why he says, even the, he says, you believe, paraphrase, congratulations, even the demons believe in God. And they shudder. They're terrified of him. The point is not that you are justified, declared righteous in God's eyes by your works. The point is that your works serve as giving evidence of an internal reality. That the genuine, that the faith that you have is genuine. Faith without works as James writes, is dead. It is non-existent. It is not faith at all. And having shown that Abraham's faith is indeed genuine, God, at the end of this, the end of these verses, he reaffirms all of the covenant promises that he has made to Abraham. And he assures him that those covenant promises will be his and those who are his children By faith. There is much more that we could say about this incredible chapter. But I want us to draw, I want us to notice one more thing, or actually a a collection of one more things. And that is you cannot help, as we read through this passage, we, we cannot help but notice that there are, there are echoes of Calvary all through the passage. There are echoes of what Christ endured all throughout this passage. We see Abraham's submission, here I am, Lord, and we see in the garden Christ responding, not my will, but yours. We see the emphasis of the repetition of Isaac as Abraham's son, his only son, And it calls to mind the numerous times we read that phrase in the New Testament. That Christ, the Son of God, His only Son, who was sent into the world, 
to die for sinners. We see this trip to Mount Moriah, which ends on the third day, which is picked up, that language on the third day is picked up throughout the Old Testament in Jonah and later and ultimately in Christ, who on the third day will rise. And it is at this Mount Moriah, which is later associated where David makes his sacrifice to turn away the wrath of God and preserve the people of Israel there in Jerusalem. And it is that place where the temple complex is built. And on a hill just outside where our Savior would give his life. We see the willing faith of Isaac who carries the wood for his sacrifice up the hill. And we see that echoed down to our Savior who carried his cross to the place of his execution. And ultimately we see it in the provision of a substitute. That there on the mount with the knife raised, God stops Abraham from bringing that knife down and slaying his own son. And there he provides a ram. God will provide a lamb, Abraham says to his son. And God does. And that pictured not just for Abraham, but it pictured for the people of Israel as they would have read this for the first time, given to them by Moses. And it pictured it for down through the centuries leading up to the time of Christ. It pictured our need for a substitute. Someone and something, a lamb to die in our place as a sacrifice. Jesus is that perfect lamb. Behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sins of the world. Christ came and he takes the place of sinners. And he died on that cross under the judgment of God in our place. And on that day, Jesus became our substitute so that everyone who trusts in him, like Abraham, may be 100% confident that all the covenant promises of God belong to us in Christ Jesus. On that day, Jesus became our atoning sacrifice, making peace with God on our behalf. And this is what is celebrated And pictured and prophesied in Isaiah chapter 53. Which Randy read earlier. We see this preeminently in verses 4 to 6. Surely he has borne our sorrows. Carried our griefs. Yet we esteemed him stricken. Smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have each of us turned every one of us to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Before we partake of the Lord's table this morning, we are going to be singing a hymn in just a moment entitled, Hallelujah, What a Savior. 
Here are just from that hymn two of the verses. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless lamb of God was he, full atonement can it be, and their interlude there is yes, yes it can be, and it is. Hallelujah, what a savior. As we gather around the elements, the the bread and the cup, we do so trusting and gazing at our Savior who is the Lamb slain for us. That we may be assured of all the promises of God on our behalf. Brother and sister, rejoice in this. And friend, if you have never put your faith in this Christ. If you have never understood what Christians are so caught up with when we talk about Jesus dying on the cross and what that could possibly possibly mean for you, that a man 2,000 years ago was killed on a cross on a hill outside Jerusalem, this is what it means, that there is hope for us before God. He is the lamb slain for us as our substitute. And in him we trust and in nothing else. Let's pray. Father in heaven. Oh God, our need is is great. We confess that we, we do not love you nearly what you deserve. We are not obedient as you deserve. We are not committed as you command us, as you are worthy. Oh, Father, we do not trust you in the way that you have shown us that you are worthy to be trusted. For you who gave us your own Son, will you not freely now give us all things Oh God, grant us eyes this week to treasure, to love, to trust, and to be committed to your your name in Christ Jesus, that we may follow you all of our days. It is in your Son's name, our Savior, we pray. Amen.